Welcome to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us. So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jockeys through the stacks to The Reference Desk. Hello, patrons. Thank you again for supporting our show. It really means the world to us. Um, This is Haley. And if you have finished listening to our episode on The Watcher, you'll know that the creepy letters sent to the new residents of 657 Boulevard were hardly the only terrible thing to happen in Westfield, New Jersey. This is the story of the List family murders. So John List was born in 1925 in Michigan to German-American parents. He served with the Army during World War II as a lab tech, and after his discharge, he received a BA in business administration and a master's in accounting from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. During the Korean War, List was recalled to active service and ended up at Fort Eustis in Virginia. Um, it was here that he met Helen Morris Taylor, a widow who uh, had a daughter of her own named Brenda. The two married less than a year after meeting. Because of his education, List was transferred to the Finance Corps, and when he was discharged, he moved the family to Detroit and got a job as an accountant. List would actually bounce around to several positions and cities in Michigan, and the Lists had three children during this time. In the 60s, Helen's daughter Brenda got married, and Helen was rumored to have a problem with alcohol and was growing increasingly unstable, and so the List family, including John's mother, moved to the East Coast, where they would eventually end up in a 19-room Victorian mansion at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield. The home was called Breeze Knoll. At the time, John had taken a job as vice president and comptroller of a bank and was a prominent member in the Lutheran Church. So the family seemed like they had it all. Um, However, the lists were living above their means. And when John lost his job, things really started to go downhill. Desperate to keep up appearances, John would leave every day as if he were going to work, and he would spend all day at the train station reading a newspaper while also secretly skimming money from his mother's bank accounts. His teenage daughter was dabbling with marijuana and gasp theater which of course were very unchristian. Um, And when John realized that his perfect existence was falling apart, he made the decision that it would be better for his family to die than to go through a life of poverty and immorality. Just so nice of him to make that decision for them. Uh, On November 19th, 1971, John waited for his children to leave for school before shooting his wife in the back of the head. He then went upstairs to the attic apartment and shot his mother, who was 84 years old, above the left eye. He went and picked up his daughter, Patricia, who was 16, and son, Frederick, who was 13, from school. Um, And immediately, once entering the house, shot both of them in the head. And then he made himself some lunch, you know, as you do. 
um, and then left to go empty out all of his bank accounts. Later that afternoon, he went to the high school to watch his oldest son, John Frederick's soccer game. Um, <laughs> God. After he drove John, uh, who was just 15 years old, home, he shot him as well. He then dragged the bodies of his family into the ballroom and placed them on sleeping bags, um, though he left his mother in her attic apartment. He left a note beside each body stating why he had to kill them. Uh, and the note with his mother's body said that hers was, quote, too heavy to move. Nice. One of the notes of explanation list left behind said, quote, I'm sure some will ask, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My answer is that it wasn't easy. <laughs> He also sent notes to his children's schools saying that they would be visiting their sick grandmother in North Carolina for a few weeks. Um, He made sure to notify his oldest kids part time jobs that they would not be coming in. Uh, He stopped all of the milk, mail and newspaper deliveries to the house. Um, And he left every single light in the house on and church music blaring over the intercom system before disappearing. It wasn't until December 7th, nearly a month after the murders, um, when one of Patricia's drama teachers came to her house to check on her, that the bodies were discovered. So her teacher's emergency call to the police said, quote, my God, you'd better send help out here. There's been a mass murder. There's bodies all over the place. Police launched a massive manhunt for List right away. Uh, In addition to the five bodies and the murder weapons, the police also had written confessions from the killer for each of the deaths. Uh, But List's track, sadly, was lost. He was gone. At Kennedy Airport in New York, they discovered his car parked there with a variety of papers and identification inside. So clearly he's not planning to be John List anymore wherever he's going. List had meticulously planned his assassinations and his escape and was essentially able to vanish into thin air before anyone was even aware of what he had done. 17 years after the crime, uh, investigators still had nothing to go on in this case. Then, on May 21st, 1989, they took a shot in the dark at finding the murderer by presenting the story of John List on the TV show America's Most Wanted. The program showed a reenactment of the murders a photograph of John List, and even had forensic artist Frank Bender create a clay bust of what List might look like currently. That night, a man named Robert P. Clark was attending a church function in Midlothian, Virginia. While he was there, several acquaintances of his were at home 
calling the hotline that America's Most Wanted had set up to take leads phoned in by viewers. Because they recognized their quiet friend and neighbor as the same man who had brutally killed his family years before. People from Golden, Colorado were also calling that same number, saying that John List, the mass murdering accountant, and Robert Clark, their local French fry cook who had recently relocated to Virginia, were the same man. So the FBI swiftly moved in and apprehended Robert P. Clark, who was married and was just living a seemingly ordinary suburban life um, after having committed these atrocious murders. He was extradited to New Jersey, and he still continued to use his alias for months, claiming that he was not John List, that he was indeed Robert P. Clark. Um, And it wasn't until February 16th, 1990, that he finally admitted to being who he really was in the face of some pretty overwhelming evidence, including a fingerprint match with List's military records. Uh, and evidence retrieved from the crime scene. List said during the trial that his financial problems had reached a crisis point in 1971 when he lost his job when the Jersey City Bank closed. He admitted to following the same routine as when he was working, leaving the house each morning on time and spending the day at job interviews or at the Westfield train station reading newspapers until it was time to return home. This allowed him to avoid discussing this embarrassing development with his family. Additionally, he had to deal with his wife's alcoholism and untreated tertiary syphilis, which she had been carrying around for 18 years after contracting it from her first spouse. According to the testimony at the trial, Helen had convinced List that she was expecting a child in order to coerce him into marriage. And then she insisted that they get married in Maryland because it did not call for the premarital syphilis test that was required in the majority of other states at the time, which, what? This might need to be another episode because what the actual fuck is that? syphilis test before you get married okay um (laughs) list claimed that this untreated condition and her alcoholism quote transformed her from an attractive young woman to an unkept and paranoid recluse dick A court-appointed psychiatrist did testify that List suffered from obsessive-compulsive disorder and that he saw only two solutions to his situation, either accept welfare or kill his family and send their souls to heaven. So List reasoned that welfare was not an option since it would expose him and his family to ridicule and go against the teachings of his very authoritarian father about a man's role in the family. This is what happens when you don't teach your sons that it is okay to have feelings. (sighs) This, you know, obviously didn't fly. And on April 1st, 1990, List was charged with five counts of first degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he denied direct responsibility for his actions. 
saying, quote, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. But of course, the judge was completely unconvinced. And during his sentencing, he said, quote, John Emil List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, five months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. Nicely done. He sentenced List with five terms of life in prison to be served consecutively, which was the maximum sentence allowed at the time. List, of course, tried to appeal, saying, you know, he had PTSD from the military, which, okay, maybe that's, I mean, probably almost everyone coming back from World War II did. Um, But I also think he's just a raging narcissist. So, yeah, nah. John (laughs) was interviewed by 2020 in the early 2000s. Uh, And he said, quote, I finally decided that the only way to save them, meaning his family, from that, meaning poverty or in his eyes, ridicule, was to kill them. I thought about killing myself, but my belief is that if you do that, your soul can't go to heaven. I could kill them. Hopefully they'd go to heaven. Later, I could confess my sins and get into heaven myself. Just a gem. So the asshole died of pneumonia in 2008. And as mentioned in the Watcher episode, the house burned down just a few months after the murders and the land was auctioned off um, to a man who had another interesting murder happen in his life. Um And that is what I know about John List. Um, So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening to The Reference Desk. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Desk. And if you're interested in purchasing any of the books we discussed today, visit our bookshop storefront at bookshop.org slash the reference desk pod. You can find us on Instagram at the reference desk pod. Visit our website at the reference desk or drop us an email at reference desk pod at gmail.com. This episode was written and produced by us. Our music is Say Salavi by Eric Harper. And our cover art for the show is by Maria Amaya. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks.